In the 1880s, in the vast and wild deserts of Arizona, legend told of a beast that roamed the wastelands, stalking the empty horizon. Those who saw it and survived said it was a colossal four-legged monster with red hair and a devil mounted upon its back. This creature became known as the Red Ghost. For years, stories of it abounded. Most of them were outrageous, exaggerated. One man said he saw it jump from one side of a canyon to another. One swore they saw it eat a grizzly bear. One witness said they saw it disappear into thin air. While these tall tales are obvious yarns that continued to spin years after their initial tellings, sometimes legends, even those that have become saturated with hyperbole, are born from real events. The Red Ghost was not a monster. It was an echo of a piece of history largely forgotten. It is possible the Red Ghost truly lived and roamed the deserts of Arizona for years, not as a monster, but as a camel. An animal, one that roamed the countryside freely on its own after it escaped, or perhaps after it was loosed once its caretakers didn't know what to do with it anymore. And it wasn't alone. In the 1850s, the U.S. government imported dozens of camels from Africa and the Middle East. They were part of a push to expand the U.S. territory westward. Before the American Civil War broke out in 1861, the U.S. Army experimented with what has come to be remembered as the Camel Corps. Ultimately, it was a failed experiment, despite initial reports of some success. But when the Camel Corps ended, the camels themselves lived on, and some of them ended up roaming the vast expanses of the American Southwest. And at least one of them would be remembered as a monster. This is their story. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. The American West conjures images of vast deserts, massive prairies, huge mountain ranges cutting into the sky, raging rivers, deep canyons, and wild frontiers. In the 1830s, the U.S., just over half a century old, had already been expanding westward into it. Expansion wasn't easy. The climate was severe in many places the terrain seemingly impassable in others, and hundreds of native tribes had already been living in the western half of what would eventually become the contiguous 48 states for thousands of years. California by itself was home to over 100 federally recognized tribes. Conflicts ensued as native land was appropriated from east to west, pushing more tribes westward. According to National Geographic, Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act of 1830 alone caused the forced relocation of 46,000 natives into Oklahoma 
and the appropriation of 25 million acres of land. Conflicts would endure in the West for years as expansion and the idea of manifest destiny continued to push its way to the Pacific. The American West is vast. Even if you leave out the Great Plains states of the Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma, we're still talking about over 2 million square miles of land. Transporting supplies, soldiers, and livestock between outposts, many of which were remote, took time and money and risk. In 1836, U.S. Army Lieutenant George H. Crossman posed an idea to Congress one he thought would help alleviate issues surrounding terrain and facilitate the movement of supplies and goods. He sent a letter to the War Department asking for camels. He wrote, extolling the camel's ability to haul massive loads of supplies while consuming less water and food than the widely used horses or mules. He wrote, quote, The ordinary loads for camels are from seven to 900 pounds each, and with these, they can travel from 30 to 40 miles a day for many days in succession. They will go without water and with but little food for six to eight days, or it is said, even longer. Their feet are alike well-suited for traversing grassy or sandy plains or rough, rocky hills and paths, and they require no shoeing." Unquote. The War Department dismissed Lieutenant Crossman's report. It was too out there and the matter was dropped for several years. Eleven years later, in 1847, transportation out west was still a problem. Henry C. Wayne of the Quartermaster Department revived Crossman's idea and recommended to both the War Department and Congress that the U.S. government import camels. He caught the attention of Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis, who liked the idea. That's the same Jefferson Davis that would go on to become the first and only president of the Confederate States until the Confederacy's defeat in the American Civil War. But the Civil War was still 14 years away, and in 1847, Davis wanted camels. For years, he would try to acquire approval for funding in order to import them. He believed they would be valuable for transportation between remote outposts, and in military operations. But the idea of importing camels was still not a popular one. Critics cited some of the unpleasant characteristics of camels, such as shedding, acute halitosis, regurgitation, and bad odor. Others believed the idea of a camel corps was part of a pro-slavery plot devised by Davis, who was pro-slavery. They believed Davis was expecting slaveholders to start moving west in larger numbers, bringing enslaved people with them. As expansion into western territories accelerated, the pro- and anti-slavery factions in and out of Congress were hotly divided on the future of slavery in those territories. Davis denied the idea of a Camel Corps was tied in any way to the expansion of slavery. And in 1855, two years after Davis was appointed Secretary of War, Congress allocated the sum of $30,000 for the purchase and importation of camels to be used for military purposes. In today's dollars, that's just under 978000 bucks. 
Davis appointed Henry C. Wayne to head the expedition to acquire camels. According to the National Museum of the United States Army, the Navy ship called the USS Supply was outfitted with special hatches, a stable area, a camel car, and hoists and slings to load and transport the animals on their long voyage from Africa and the Middle East to the U.S. The trip to acquire camels took place in many ports and was not without its difficulties. Export permits and finding healthy animals were both issues. There were stops in numerous ports along the way, including stops in Tunis, Constantinople, which wouldn't officially adopt the name of Istanbul for another 75 years, Cairo, Alexandria, and Smyrna. Along with the camels, Wayne needed to hire handlers and camel drivers that were familiar with the animals and could help with their assimilation into the U.S. military. Turkish and Arab handlers were hired, including a Syrian camel driver named Haji Ali, later known as Hajjali, whose tomb you can still visit if you ever venture to Quartzsite, Arizona. After the Camel Corps experiment ultimately failed, Jolly became an American citizen. It's said that once, after being insulted for not being invited to a picnic, he drove through the event on a cart pulled by two camels, which I hope is a true story. He died in his 70s in Arizona in 1903. Locals spent several weeks building him a pyramid-shaped tomb out of petrified wood and quartz. In 1935, the Arizona Highway Department added the metal silhouette of a camel on the top of his tomb and a bronze plaque telling his story. But that was decades in the future. On February 15, 1856, 33 camels with five handlers were loaded aboard the USS Supply for the long three-month journey back to the U.S. The ship finally arrived in Indianola, Texas. During the voyage, one camel had died, but six calves were born, with two surviving, which meant the ship that had loaded 33 camels was unloading with 34. The camels were a mix of males and females, of dromedaries, or one-humped camels, and Bactrian, or two-humped camels. Nine months after the first camels arrived, another 41 would be imported, bringing the total to 75. Initially, the camels made the 120-mile or so, or 193-kilometer, trek to San Antonio, Texas, then another 60-mile, or 96.5-kilometer, journey to Camp Verde, which remained the main hub for the Camel Corps for years. Once in Camp Verde, Texas, Wayne wanted to test the capabilities of these new animals, so he devised a test. According to the National Museum of the U.S. Army, he sent wagons from Camp Verde to San Antonio for a supply of oats. He sent three wagons, each with a team of six mules and another team of six camels. The mule-drawn wagons, which could carry 1,800 pounds or 816 kilograms of oats, took five days to make the return journey to camp. The six camels carried 3,648 pounds, or just under 1,655 kilos of oats, and made the return trip in just two days. This demonstrated not only the superior ability of the camels to carry supplies, but their efficiency when it came to travel time and distance. 
they could carry twice as much in less than half the time. After this, it was time to put the camels to a real test. In 1857, Congress authorized the survey and building of a wagon road that stretched from Fort Defiance, New Mexico territory, to where the Colorado River meets the border between California and Arizona. This would be a huge undertaking and a trek that would take almost five months and cover over 1,200 miles, or well over 1,900 kilometers of terrain. The contract to build and survey was won by Edward Fitzgerald Beale. Beale found out only after he accepted the contract that the new Secretary of War, John B. Floyd, required he take 25 camels with him on the expedition. Beale was not happy about this arrangement. He hated the idea of taking camels. He wasn't familiar with them and wanted nothing to do with them or anything that could potentially slow him down. He protested vehemently, but the Secretary of War made it clear that the camels were not up for negotiation. So on June 25, 1857, Beale and his party, which begrudgingly included 25 camels, set out on their historic journey. Initially, some of the unfavorable characteristics of camels cited by critics of the Camel Corps did present a few obstacles. They spit and they stank. There were reports of their odor being so foul that it spooked the mules and horses. During the first week of the journey, the camels moved slower than the horses and mules and trudged into camp sometimes hours after the others. But in the second week of the journey, all of that changed. Beale believed the initial difficulties were due to the camels having become used to their idleness in Camp Verde. Now, each camel was carrying 700 pounds of supplies a day, outdistancing the horses and mules and covering terrain the other animals could barely walk over. Beale, now convinced of the usefulness of camels, wrote of them, quote, Sometimes we forget they are with us. Certainly, there never was anything so patient or enduring and so little troublesome as this noble animal. They pack their heavy load of corn, of which they never taste a grain, put up with any food offered them without complaint, and are always up with the wagons, and withal so perfectly docile and quiet that they are the admiration of the whole camp." Unquote. On top of their speed and load-bearing abilities, the camels were remarkably low-maintenance. They could travel around 30 miles a day, go 10 days without water, they ate the scrubs and plants along the trail, and were not bothered in the least by the severe desert heat. Once, they even saved the lives of everyone on the expedition. When the surveyors became lost after having meandered into an impossible canyon where there was no food or water, the mules and horses began to panic. A scouting party on camels left, eventually finding a river 20 miles away. They returned and led the rest of the party back to water and safety, saving the day. When the expedition had to cross a deep river, Beale wrote that he was delighted to discover the camels could also swim. These animals he was so upset to have in his party ended up being one of the greatest tools on the expedition. 
before the expedition, Beale had wanted nothing to do with camels. After the expedition, he was a raving fan. He wrote, quote, An important part of all our operations has been acted by the camels. Without the aid of this noble and useful brute, many hardships which we have been spared would have fallen to our lot, and our admiration for them has increased day by day, as some new hardship endured patiently, more fully developed their entire adaptation and usefulness in the exploration of the wilderness. At times I have thought it impossible they could stand the test to which they have been put, but they seem to have risen equal to every trial and have come off of every exploration with as much strength as before starting. I have subjected them to trials which no other animal could possibly have endured, and yet I have arrived here not only without the loss of a camel, but they are admitted by those who saw them in Texas to be in as good a condition as when we left San Antonio. I believe at this time and may speak for every man in our party when I say that there is not one of them who would not prefer the most indifferent of our camels to four of our best mules." Unquote. When Beale was hired to survey a second route, this time from Arkansas to Colorado, an expedition that took nearly a year, he again took 25 camels and had similar successful results. He wrote to Congress afterwards, extolling the camel as a means of transport. More expeditions were sent out, contracted and military, and at least once more, camels saved the lives of everyone on an expedition. In 1861, an army survey party became lost in the Mojave Desert. Several of their mules became lost, and the party had to abandon most of their equipment. It was the camels who led their handlers to safety. But despite the obvious advantages camels had over mules and horses, the Camel Corps would come to an abrupt end. First, the mule lobby, yes, there was a mule lobby, didn't want Congress funding the importation of any more camels. Although this made acquiring funds and more camels difficult, the real nail in the coffin for the camel experiment was war. When the American Civil War broke out in 1861, Texas seceded from the Union, and Confederate forces seized Camp Verde and its camels. Not all of the camels that had originally been acquired were in Camp Verde at the time, but the ones that were were either deliberately killed, turned loose, sold off, or sent to war. Some of the camels had been moved to California, which meant they escaped encountering the Confederate forces at Camp Verde. They were cared for until they were eventually put up for auction in 1864. After the war, the idea of importing camels for transport out west was not brought up seriously again. The Transcontinental Railroad, which would connect the eastern U.S. rail networks to the west coast, greatly reduced the need for transport animals. Although the Army's camel experiment was over, the camels were still here. Some were sent to work in Nevada salt mines. Some were sent to zoos and circuses. Some went to private buyers who bought them at auctions. Beale, who had led the survey expeditions out west, even bought a few. Others wandered away or were set loose by people who hadn't anticipated that caring for a camel wouldn't be easy. Some of those camels, along with those that had escaped or been set loose from Camp Verde, became wild. In 
Sightings of camels in the American West would last well into the 20th century. And for one camel, its history was at an end, but its legend was just beginning. From the mid-1850s through the early 20th century, seeing a camel silhouetted against a blazing western sunset would have been a rare, but not unheard of, sight to see. According to the Smithsonian, after the U.S. Army imported their original 75 animals, private businesses imported hundreds more, anticipating a robust market for camels out west. According to National Geographic, there was also a market for camels in the American South after Henry C. Wayne, Jefferson Davis's original camel importer, wrote a widely republished letter enumerating the merits of camels in plantation labor, saying they could be used in lieu of mules for any number of tasks, like hauling large quantities of cotton. According to historian Michael Woods, there may have been a more insidious reason for the importation of camels for private businesses. When it came to private shipments of camels, he claims it's likely they were used as a smokescreen for smuggling African captives to North America. This is because in 1808, the U.S. outlawed the importation of enslaved people, but not slavery itself. Domestic slave trade would continue to flourish. But since the importation of enslaved people was now illegal, this meant transatlantic slave traders had to come up with schemes to avoid detection. Since ships hauling camels needed large water tanks and large food supplies, and had unsanitary conditions and strong smells, all of which were usually red flags for detecting slave traders smuggling captive Africans, Hauling camels in the same ship where stolen people were secretly stored could have been a way for some slave traders to avoid detection. According to National Geographic, one notorious slave trader, a man named John A. Machado, was the main private importer of camels to the U.S., which was probably not a coincidence. The camel business never took off with plantation owners. Export permits and the acquisition of healthy animals were issues, and caring for and training camels was different than it was with the more familiar horses and mules. The fate of the privately imported camels was similar to the fate of the army's camels. According to the Smithsonian, the commercially imported camels started to mix with the army's former camels in the 1870s. Although this did result in some newborns, there was never enough of a feral camel population for a healthy breeding population to become established. As the years rolled on, the sightings of wild camels became fewer in number. In the 1880s, one camel in particular, possibly one of the old army camels that had escaped from Camp Verde, was causing such a commotion throughout the countryside that it quickly became the stuff of folk legend. There is speculation as to how credible the details of the stories are surrounding this animal, but multiple eyewitness accounts told of a camel with red-tinted hair that went on a rampage through the deserts of Arizona. The story begins in 1883. 
a party of prospectors were awakened in their camp by the sound of thundering hooves. When they hurried to see what was rampaging through their camp, all they saw was a huge shape and a flash of reddish hair in the moonlight. One of their tents was nearly destroyed, and there were hoof prints on the ground, and a few strands of rusty hair snagged in the desert brush. A few days later, the beast attacked again, this time upending two freight wagons during its frenzy. A few weeks later, at a ranch near Eagle Creek in Arizona, the camel made another appearance. This time, it was deadly. The details of this particular story vary, but in each version, a woman is trampled and stomped to death by what a witness described as a strange beast covered in red hair with a devil strapped to its back. Supposedly, all that was found near the woman's crushed body were strands of reddish hair and hoofprints. It would be great if we had some corroborating historical documentation for this story. A coroner's report, perhaps, or the recorded testimony of the witness. But according to an article from AZ Central, the coroner's reports for Apache County, where this event was said to occur, are on file for the years 1882 and 1884, but the file for 1883 is unfortunately missing. After the incident at the ranch, people started calling this animal the Red Ghost, and already tall tales were spinning up everywhere, which makes discerning the truth from the legend difficult 140 years later. Though we can probably discount the witness who said he saw the Red Ghost jump across a canyon. Apparently, that same guy also said he once saw a flying bear and a mountain made of gold. Finally, one witness, a man named Cyrus Hamlin, finally identified the beast as a camel. But though Hamlin was a respected member of his community, many didn't believe him when he said he saw a man strapped to the camel's back. Most believed Hamlin had merely seen the camel's hump and been confused, mistaking it for a person. However, Another account surfaced near Phoenix that corroborated Hamlin's account. A cowboy, working for the Anchor J outfit, came upon the Red Ghost while he was out on his horse. True to his profession, he tried tossing a lasso around the camel's neck, which ultimately turned out to be a bad idea. The Red Ghost turned and charged. It knocked the horse and the cowboy to the ground before galloping away in a cloud of dust. On its back, the cowboy said he saw the skeletal remains of a man. After this, a group of miners saw the camel in the Verde Valley and decided they would try to shoot it. They missed, but as the beast ran away, something fell to the ground. Supposedly, it was a human skull, dried and withered, with the flesh and hair still on it. Again, it would be nice if we had the actual skull to corroborate this story, but that too is nowhere to be found. For years, stories of the Red Ghost trickled through the Arizona deserts, until finally the story of the Red Ghost came to an abrupt end. One day... A man named Mizu Hastings looked out his window 
and saw the red ghost eating out of his garden. He grabbed his gun and decided to shoot it, which seems to be a theme in this story. He steadied his rifle on his windowsill, and with one shot brought down the old red ghost. When he went out to examine it, the back of the animal was deeply scarred from rawhide straps like those that would have been used to hold up the body of a rider. Over the years, the skeleton rider had fallen away, piece by piece, bone by bone, until only the scars from the leather straps remained. But why? Why would the skeletal remains of a person be strapped to the back of a camel? There are a few theories. Some have posited it could have been a lone prospector, surveyor, or soldier who had become lost and strapped himself to the camel as he was falling into a weakened state in hopes that it would find civilization after he lost the strength to hold on. Perhaps it was a joke some bored soldiers played on a young recruit, only for it to go horribly awry. There are any number of possibilities, but is it a true story? It is possible. It's the right time frame. It's the right geographic location. We have a few corroborating stories amidst the many unreliable tall tales. We know there were feral camels roaming in the area when the eyewitness accounts occurred during those years. What we lack is hard documentation or physical evidence, and it's unlikely we'll be getting that anytime soon. For now, the Red Ghost lives on in legend, and though the camels of the American West are gone, no longer roaming wild over the mesas and through the deserts, we still remember them. Y'all know that sometimes I like to end with a poem. And there's one that was written by Percy Bysshe Shelley sometime between 1817 and 18, called Ozymandias. Ozymandias is the Greek name for the pharaoh Ramses II, who died in 1213 BCE. The poem is about a traveler who comes upon Ramses II's tomb and ponders on the ravages of time and how even the greatest of pharaohs and the empires they forge are ultimately impermanent and fated to pass into history. Shelley wrote it, perhaps after he was inspired by hearing about the discovery of a statue of Ramses II that had been discovered in 1817. Something about it hits just right when I think about the fate of these camels. Maybe it's because they're largely forgotten by most of us. Or maybe it's the nobility they seem to carry with them in the stories I've read while researching this. But I want to share it with you, because I think it's strangely apt for this piece of history. This is Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. 
round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Like Ozymandias, our camels, those noble ships of the desert, now free of the burdens we laid so heavily upon them, belong now only to the sands of time and history. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the history of camels in the American West and the tale of the Red Ghost. This was a fun one to research, even if it was a little sad at times. And now we know a lot of weird trivia about camels. I'll be back again in three weeks, as always, with more history for ya. In the meantime, you can get a hold of me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.